Welcome to Physicians of the Beaten Path, a podcast where we've set out to bust the myth that physicians cannot venture outside the traditional clinical or research career paths. My name is Alex. I qualified as an MD in Syria before studying an MBA, computer science, PhD, and master's of bioengineering at Harvard, Oxford, and Stanford. And I'm now building Sky Therapeutics, a digital therapeutics startup developing therapeutic video games. My name's Shad. I'm a physician and Harvard MBA and a co-founder of digital therapeutics startup called Sky Therapeutics. I'm very excited for today's episode with our guest, Dr. Farzad Soleimani. Farzad is the healthcare partner at 1984 Ventures, having seeded companies such as Trusted Health, uh, DeepScribe, HealthNote, and Cygnos. He has over 20 years of experience at the intersection of healthcare and entrepreneurship. He's the founder of eTherapy, a pioneering telemedicine company, and the founding co-director of the Texas Medical Center Biodesign Innovation Program. He started his investing career at Moore Davido Ventures and continued to work at a number of innovation startups such as Pocket Naloxone, Starling Medical, Hansen Medical, and IGAN Biosciences. In addition to his work as an entrepreneur and venture capitalist, he has also published many articles on healthcare innovation and currently holds numerous medical technology patents. Farzad completed his residency training at Baylor and earned his MBA, MD, MS, and BS from Stanford University. He is on the faculty at Baylor Medical School, Rice Business School, and Rice Bioengineering Department. Uh, Farzad, uh, welcome to Physicians of the Beaten Path. I'm really excited about the conversation today. Well, uh, thank you for having me. Uh, Farzad, first of all, congratulations on 1984 being recognized as one of the top seed funds. That's awesome. Uh, you know, Shad and I have been really looking forward to the conversation. So I want to start with asking you about your childhood, your decision to pursue a career in medicine, and your eventual decision to venture off the beaten path. Over to you. Okay. Well, thank you, Shad and Alex, for having me uh, on this episode. It's really a pleasure speaking with you. And um, thank you for mentioning and uh, the recognition for the fund. Um, we had a, an awesome quarter of recognitions by the industry. And uh, 1984 Ventures is the brainchild of uh, my really good friend, Rami Adib. And, um, you know, our partnership, we all have contributed uh, to making it a world-class uh, seed fund. Um in terms of my journey uh, to this point, um, it might seem like uh, an unusual path, but to be honest with you, it wasn't that unusual. So I grew up in Iran. Uh, I was born in Tehran and um, loved math and science. Moved to the United States at the age of 12, uh, where I attended a high school in Austin, Texas. Uh, it was a great um, high school, uh, it was a science academy, so we had wonderful teachers uh, who spent a lot of time uh, teaching us about the basics of math and science, so the STEM education was uh, highly important, and that led me to a Stanford undergrad. And once I got there, I realized that you know taking a normal path would be considered unusual at Stanford, so uh, taking on the unique paths uh, are actually more um, applauded uh, in that setting. So that led me to take a lot of different classes in different schools from engineering to um, natural sciences to business, law, and um, obviously um, engineering. 
So um, that was a very enriching experience. Um, it was an environment where entrepreneurship uh, was supported in every aspect. Um, students were free to explore. Uh, there were no barriers uh, in terms of education and learning about um, different subjects. Uh, I remember that uh, second year, I was a sophomore um, at Stanford, and I was allowed to take a third-year law school class, which was amazing. Um, and that was actually a class I took on health policy uh, and uh, various legal ramifications of health policy and how it impacts healthcare financing. So that got me really interested on the business aspect of uh, healthcare. Um, and it was encouraging to find great mentors in, uh, in the School of Medicine as well as in the business school. I worked very closely with Alan and Toven, who is known as the father of managed care. And I did a master's thesis um, entitled uh, Healthcare Financing Reform and Its Implications for a Medical Legal Reform. Um, so that was a, a very rewarding experience. Alan and Toven was a great mentor to me. And at the end of my master's thesis uh, work, uh, I was really pumped. I was like, I'm going to go to Washington. I'm going to go change you know, the, the legal and uh, policy landscape for healthcare, we are not doing things right. And he sat me down, he's like, let, let me be very uh, clear with you. You are not going to be able to do anything uh, as a policymaker. Either become a very successful physician, become dean of a medical school, or become very famous uh, and influential executive. And by doing so, you will be in a position to change healthcare. Um, so he actually was very encouraging of me to go to medical school and also business school. So that led me to the Stanford Medical School. And that was a very great um, experience because it was the second year that the Stanford Biodesign program was launched. So I got to work with uh, Paul Diak and Josh McHauer and Tom Cromwell, uh, learning the fundamentals of healthcare innovation uh, from the need uh, driven um, process. And um, that also led me to my first job at a VC fund uh, at the end of my first year in medical school uh, at a fund called Mordavda Ventures, which was one of the uh, legacy VC funds um, in Silicon Valley. So I guess there were a lot of va uh, different influences on me that led me to this path of healthcare innovation and entrepreneurship. But I really owe it to amazing mentors I've had along the way. And that really clarified, first for me, what is it that I want to do with my life? And secondly, how I can get there. And so I'm really indebted to them. Um, other mentors that come to my mind when I started business school, I got to meet Fred Mall, the founder of Intuitive Surgical. Um, also a great mentor of mine, I ended up working uh, with Fred at Hansen Medical, which was his endovascular robotics company. And he was actually the first person who wrote a check um, for us to start eTherapy, which was uh, one of the earliest telemedicine companies in the behavioral health space. Um, and uh, obviously, we were early to the market. We were 10 years ahead of the market in terms of reimbursement, uh, patient adoption, provider adoption, and even technology. Uh, but it was a very um, rewarding experience and really taught me the ropes of entrepreneurship. Thank you, Farzad. That's an amazing journey. And I really appreciate the point 
on uh, your mentors being supportive. And I'm just opposing the story of your interactions with your mentors and their advice with one story that one of my mentors shared with me. He's a finance executive coming from a clinical uh, background, and he had shared that one of the hardest professional conversations that he ever had in his life was with his clinical mentors when he mentioned to them that he is leaving clinical medicine and going into finance. You know, that story just highlights the importance of of having the right kind of mentors and, and helping you kind of reach the point of success that you aspire to outside of uh, direct clinical care. You know, Farzad, I'm curious, kind of when you were making the decision to go into business and forego clinical medicine full time, I understand that the environment around you was very supportive of that, but did you had any doubts, difficulties, challenges while making that decision? And if so, how have you overcome those? Um, great question. Uh, and I agree with you. I think uh, the role of mentors and their level of support for, I guess, unusual path uh, in terms of pursuing a clinical um, career versus a hybrid career uh, is very important. Um, honestly, one of the most difficult things I did in my life was not to um, continue my medical training with a residency training program right after medical school. It was a very difficult decision for me. And at that time, obviously, uh, I was fortunate to be open to my mentors and advisors and so forth. And um, I told them, I'm thinking of starting a telemedicine company. So they said, well, you know, you need to um, take the opportunity and go for it. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to do that. So if you want to have one foot in medicine and one foot, you know, in the startup, it might not turn out the way it is going to turn out. Now, uh, the company obviously um, didn't end up becoming um, a very commercially successful company for other reasons, but it wasn't for the lack of focus on my part. And I always mention this to entrepreneurs that, you know, if they want to be uh, successful as founders, they really need to commit. I mean, if you have that level of conviction in an idea that you want to pursue, you're willing to let go of everything else. You're, you're willing to um, impose on yourself uh, austere lifestyle conditions. You know, you may not be getting paid. You may be bootstrapping. Um, you are foregoing those uh, luxuries, but uh, you are uh, really committing yourself to a path. And that's really a sign of a good entrepreneur and a committed entrepreneur. Um, but at the same time, I, I feel that the narrative of if somebody doesn't do clinical training, they are like a cop-out and like, you know, they, they are not the true clinician. I, I don't think that is very constructive. Um, I eventually ended up going back to clinical training. I now practice uh, as an emergency medicine physician. I'm on faculty at Baylor. Um, and I did so because I was always passionate about patient care. And I felt that uh, by taking care of patients uh, personally, I am able to have an insight that not everybody else has. Um, so I have continued on that path even to this date as an investor. Um, but we need to encourage our medical students, PhD students, 
to think outside the box and be supportive of them if they decide to pursue other uh, career pathways that may not be very traditional. And in clinical medicine, there are biases. I mean, uh, Stanford is a special place, obviously, everybody's open to it and everybody's doing something, is doing a startup in their garage um, while pursuing their their uh, clinical uh, training or clinical practice. Uh, but even in other institutions, I feel that uh, there has been a significant change over the past 20 years that I've been in this field. Um, and even East Coast schools are now very encouraging of um, uh, students, medical students and residents to do other innovative pathways. Thank you for that. First, I love the, the idea that Commitment is so important. It reminds me of one famous sentence that one of our business school professors used to say to anyone who would tell him that, you know, his dabbling with entrepreneurship part time while doing something else. He always used to say commitment creates magic. And, uh, you know, kind of what you were saying just reminded me directly of that phrase. And I think the other component is, you know, in a similar way to to this idea that the environment of Stanford, where the unusual path is considered the usual, that idea, you know, encourages innovation, encourages individuals to go off the beaten path, uh, to go into innovation, to go into different career trajectories. I think, as you've mentioned, that idea doesn't exist yet in most medical schools and and perhaps in a similar way, that kind of mentality and that societal expectation and that environmental expectation in Stanford is very helpful in encouraging a non-traditional path. Maybe that could also be very helpful. That mentality and that perspective could be very helpful in the clinical environment and in medical school. So, you know, just shifting gears to my second question, you encourage providing medical students and residents with hands-on exposure to fields uh, such as engineering and business, you know, which can enrich their knowledge and, and skill set. And the job market today for MDs is significantly changing from what it was 20 or 30 years ago. There are more opportunities available in the domains of health innovation or investing or consulting. And so one question that we think about often is, whether it is the role of the medical curriculum and medical schools to provide MD students with the skills and capabilities that are needed for success outside of direct clinical care. So some argue that, yes, that's the role of medical school and that medical schools should equip MD students with skills and expertise that would help them succeed outside the clinic. Others argue that it should not. It should purely focus on clinical care and joint degree programs like MD-MBA or MD-PhD would be more helpful in serving that role and function. So I'm really curious to know kind of where you stand uh, on this argument. It's a very interesting question. I, am, I believe that medical schools um, should adopt their curriculum in general. So we need to constantly improve on what we have been doing well. And even like here in Houston, Texas, where I live, uh, Texas A&M, for example, has started a medical school, and one of the big components of their curriculum is teaching engineering and healthcare innovation. Um, so, so they are very embedded with the engineering school, and that's really how they are training the the next generation of uh, medical practitioners. Uh, I believe uh, once you finish medical school, you also get a master's degree in bioengineering or an equivalent of that. Um, so, we are seeing this around. The country and even globally, where traditional medical schools are embracing the idea that they need to teach more tools 
uh, to their students uh, beyond uh, clinical skills and clinical knowledge. Um, in recent years, we have seen the burgeoning of AI companies, for example. Like um, a lot of clinicians don't understand the fundamentals of AI, what is artificial intelligence, how it can be used. But the ones who understand are now incorporating AI as a decision support uh, to augment their practice. Uh, we now have generative AI, which can help with documentation and other aspects of clinical care. So having that understanding and that exposure will set you up for success because uh, the world is changing rapidly. And if we don't adopt our curriculums, uh, we are going to uh, be falling behind. Um, so I am of the opinion that medical school curricula need to change and we need to expose the students to different fields so that they know when and where to use some of these tools. Uh, at the same time, um, more uh, intense studies in form of dual degree programs, MD-MBA, MD-JD, MD-PhD, still have their place. Um, I remember that when I got accepted into the business school program at Stanford, I actually worked really hard to convince them to let me finish it in a year. And they said, okay, you can do it in a year, so you don't have to spend two years in business school. But they left me with one final thought, and that was the value of your MBA comes from graduating with your class and getting to know your classmates really well, because those are the people who are going to support your career in the future. And I took their advice to heart and I listened to them and I ended up doing the two-year program. And it was the best decision of my life. Um, the relationships I built through business school wouldn't have been possible if I had just been there for, for a year. Uh, the same thing goes with you know, MD-PhD programs. Uh, a lot of my friends pursued MD-PhDs. They're amazing researchers. They're very successful lab operators and they're doing breakthrough technologies and, and scientific discoveries. And, you know, that intense level of um, studying, I think, uh, is also important. But it doesn't mean that, you know, in, in medical school, we shouldn't expose people at least to the basics of some of the other fields. Thank you, Farzad. I'm of, of the same opinion. and I have a lot of thoughts and reflections. But for the interest of time, I'm going to hand it over to Shad uh, for a few questions from his side. Over to you, Shad. Thank you, Alex. Thank you, Farzad. Really appreciating the conversation so far and, and just wanted to reflect on a couple of things that you guys mentioned, which are really, really important, and, and it's worth mentioning one more time for the audience. Farzad, you said that it's really important to commit to something, and that's especially important in entrepreneurship, as you know. You know, this is something I truly believe in because there's so many different factors that lead to success, you know, hard work, luck, macroeconomic factors, and many more, obviously, but some of which are within your control and some aren't. But a big factor to entrepreneurial success is hard work. And, and hard work is simplistically a function of the time and the effort you're putting into something. And we've mentioned this previously, but for a startup to succeed, you know, you're taking something novel and implementing it into a world that is hopefully ready to embrace it. And if not, you have to do something to make it embrace it or you have to adapt. And some things in business can probably be done well while having a part-time or full-time clinical career, but building a large company from scratch is probably not one of them, at least in my opinion. And so I think understanding that the world is about trade-offs and knowing what trade-offs you're willing to personally make, it's not easy. None of this is, is sort of easy, even psychologically, 
but even more importantly than psychologically, people have, you know, dad, people have, you know, partners, people have real lives to live. And sometimes that gets in the way of what you want to do, right? So none of this is easy. And I don't want to sugarcoat that, but sort of understanding what trade-offs you're willing to make in your entrepreneurial journey, very important. And that realization helped me personally get over the hump when I decided that after business school, I wouldn't go back to residency. And it took a while. So Farzad, like I said, really enjoying the conversation. I, I wanted to ask you to take us into the minds of a seasoned venture capitalist as you're looking at today's venture landscape. And uh, we haven't had a VC on in probably, you know, five, six months. And so this is the perfect opportunity. You know, from my perspective, there's certainly some headwinds and, and tailwinds that are worth mentioning. And I wanted to mention a couple of them for the audience uh, so that they're sort of aware before we hear your reflections. But in terms of headwinds, uh, you know, according to Rock Health, the number of deals and the amounts in the most recent quarter continues to be depressed relative to 2020 and 2021 highs. And valuations are still relatively low, especially in the later stages. And anecdotally, I have a few friends that have spent, you know, six, nine, you know, 11 months uh, trying to fundraise a media round. And some of these people were taking two, three, four months in their previous rounds, you know, just two, three years ago. Some of them have also had to take a down round with a significant cut to their valuations. And I've heard that some companies are even doing discrete non-lettered funding rounds so as not to sort of advertise their lower valuations. Additionally, the IPO market still hasn't quite recovered, which certainly you know, gives Series B, C, D, and crossover investors some pause. So momentum doesn't seem quite there. It doesn't seem to be quite there on the private side. And we obviously know what happened with SVB, the bank run and the eventual sort of blow up, which was devastating for startups, given their outsized role SVB had in catering to startups. We personally were you know, affected by that, but thankfully we were able to sort of weather that storm. There's some tailwinds as well, right? It's not all doom and gloom. Generally, sort of in the macroeconomic and, and public market spaces, the public markets especially driven by AI and big tech, have had their best year in decades. With the rise in interest rates in the U.S., you know, inflation's coming down significantly, and all the while the economy has held strong with a still pretty tight labor market and low unemployment. And with inflation coming down pretty robustly, perhaps, you know, this is a little optimistic, but perhaps interest rates can start being slashed significantly starting in 2024, which may, you know, lower the threshold required to invest in early stage startups by, you know, lowering the effective cost of capital. So the markets and the economy have fared pretty well, which is good for investor and LP liquidity and confidence. And, and from what I can see, there's still a supply of companies. You know, the number of new businesses formed was at a record high in 2021. I think it was 5.4 million new uh, business formations and 5 million in 2022, which was the second highest year on record. And lastly, there's still availability of a ton of dry powder, meaning for our audience, capital that VCs are sitting on and could deploy at any moment. So from my perspective, uh, while there's still macroeconomic uncertainty and exercising you know, long-term baseline caution is always a good thing as to not get swept up in bubbles, it feels like we have the ingredients right now for opportunistic and, dare I say, even sort of high-volume investment activity. You know, record amounts of dry powder, record amounts of new businesses being formed and valuations being cheaper than they have been in the last five odd years. In other words, I'm cautiously optimistic, but, you know, I'm an entrepreneur, so maybe I'm primed to be. Farzad, you know, what are your thoughts on this sort of narrative that I've just laid out? Do you agree or disagree? And, and when do you think there's going to be a return to robust deal making on the private healthcare side? Well, 
that was a beautiful overview of the market, Shad. Um, and the fact that you are an optimistic uh, entrepreneur, you know, makes you a very resilient entrepreneur. And that's what uh, entrepreneurship is all about. Um, it is it is a strange time um, with venture capital investing and startup formation. Um, certainly, we are going through a correction. Um, two years ago, everything was too hot. Um, everything was overpriced. Expectations were unrealistic. Uh, a lot of founders uh, were not careful about how they are spending their capital. Um, the burn rates were very high relative to the revenue of the companies or the milestones they had accomplished. Um, so, so it was inevitable that we would go through a market correction, which we are experiencing right now. In terms of uh, dry capital, yes, uh, VCs are seeing a lot of capital. Um, but the cost of capital has gone up. So this is forcing the venture capital uh, funds to be more picky. And the bar has certainly been raised in terms of the quality of founding teams and startups that they are willing to back. And there is this tacit notion that um, very, very in terms of milestones for, let's say, a Series A, now you kind of need to be close to the Series B milestones to be able to raise a Series A and to be close to a Series C milestone to, to raise a Series B. So everything has kind of shifted forward, uh, which makes it more difficult for founders, for sure. Um, currently, two, three of our companies, one of them has an start, but two of our companies are wrapping up their Series B. And they are, they are led by incredible entrepreneurs, some of our best companies. They have grown revenue uh, significantly. Um, I mean, they're, they're just solid companies. Uh, a lot of people are talking about them. Um, but it was... And not an easy fundraising, you know, it took them three months, you know, uh, to get around together. Whereas, honestly, if this was two years ago, they would have raised it in less than a month. And these are seasoned entrepreneurs who can tell a story really well, and they have the metrics to show the investors that what they have built is uh, worth investing in. Um, so so the, the bar is higher for entrepreneurs and founders, um, so we need to work harder. But at the same time, that creates more incentive uh, for entrepreneurs to be creative and uh, trying to hack growth, for example, in terms of the digital health companies. Can we shorten the sales cycle? Are there ways that we can go from nine months to six months, from six months to three months? Um, you know, when we are under duress uh, as humans, we typically become creative. And I think that is... Um, leaving some positive impact on some of these companies. Uh, but the, the seed to Series A is becoming problematic, to be honest with you, because we are calling it the value of that. Uh, because a lot of great founders, you know, they start a company, they raise a Series C, and Series C is usually raised on assumption. But when, when you get to Series A, you have to show numbers. And they cannot reach those milestones exactly in the timeframe that they set before. And if they have uh, raised the minimum amount of seed capital, they're going to run out of capital and then they get into trouble. And some of them are being forced to shut down. So our advice to entrepreneurs that are in the earlier stage of company formation is to raise more capital, to uh, try to raise bigger seeds. That reduces your downstream 
financing risks. But to your point, uh, there are still plenty of incredible entrepreneurs that are coming in to raise capital. Um, I have to say that uh, our deal flow has not uh, gone down and we, we still see the same number of um, deals, high quality deals. And I can say even the quality is becoming even better than before. The ones that are approaching our fund, you know, to, to raise capital, you know, they have so much more to show for. Uh, the founding team uh, needs to be resilient, though. I mean, th- these are difficult times, and we all need to expect that everything is going to take longer, from fundraising to even company formation. And there are some positive uh, signals in terms of hiring because some of the big companies have let go of a lot of their workforce, so there are a lot of talented people that are available to work for startups. So that is definitely a tailwind that we should appreciate and take advantage of. Um, but overall, I, I think I'm, I'm also very optimistic. I, I think we are going to um, come out of this stronger, both as investors and as entrepreneurs. And hopefully we will not make the mistakes that we, we made before, or at least not as much. Uh, so we, we have to have a little bit of learning from all of these cycles. Yeah, incredibly insightful, uh, Farzad. I want to reflect and summarize rather for our audience some of what you said and what I'm hearing from you is that you're still seeing deal flow and the quality of the deal flow is still very good, perhaps even better than usual, because there's this adaptation that takes place under constrained conditions. But the threshold to deploy has gone up. And I've heard this from some of my VC friends as well. And what does that mean that the threshold has gone up? So conceptually, the milestones have shifted. And so you have to be more advanced than you otherwise would have had to be you know, just a year or two or three years ago. And the quality of the founders, which we'll spend a lot of time talking about just now, is different as well, or at least your willingness to deploy capital to the types of founders that you consider resilient and in high quality has somewhat changed. So investments are still being made, but to a smaller group of companies that are of higher quality. And I think that's a helpful framework and somewhat still optimistic framework for founders to actually think about as they go out and raise capital. It's important now to talk about you know, founders because you mentioned it three or four times in your last answer, and it set us up nicely for the next question. You know, In a recent interview with Why They Invested, uh, you highlighted the significance of a startup team in convincing you to invest. You know, I've come to learn that while things like, you know, idea, the size of the market, the business model, the execution obviously are very, very important, what's likely the most important are the founders, their dynamic, their underlying values, how well they sort of execute together. And I think for first-time founders, I always tell them to spend a lot of time selecting, you know, who you surround yourself with. I found that personally in startups, the first two or five or 10 people have such an you know intense relationship that the ideal is to have you know shared values but complementary capabilities. And so for me, what that means is that it's good if one person is good at X and the other person is good at Y because you're sort of doubling your internal capabilities. But startups don't often work well if two people you know fundamentally have very different worldviews or a starkly different risk or ethical thresholds or radically different working styles. And I'm not just talking about, you know, being different in personality style or attitude, which can be an asset to a degree. For example, if you have one person that's observant, but introverted, and the other person who's not very observant, but extroverted, they can, you know, help each other with their relative blind spots. 
but that isn't really what I'm talking about. I'm more, I'm talking about sort of fundamentally different people with non-overlapping value systems. Like one person values transparency and integrity, but the other one may not for whatever reason. Or one person values loyalty and the other one does not. I think executing together becomes quite challenging uh, under those circumstances. But that's just, you know, sort of seeing my friends and their companies and doing a lot, bunch of reading and, and my own experience in a startup. You've seen, I imagine, thousands and thousands of founding teams, and you're an entrepreneur yourself for many years. You know, what do the best founding teams, in your opinion, and from what you've seen, have in common? And, and how do you parse out the nuances of their dynamic to ensure that you're able to see underneath the hood, so to speak? Great question. So the founding team, I think, is the most important part of the successful um, setup for a company. So um, we have spent a lot of time as investors talk about what is our ideal founding team. And honestly, it is hard to get to a conclusion that everybody agrees. And with every company, there are some subtle differences. But at the end of the day, again, number one, do the founding team have conviction? Are they on the same wavelength? Uh, do they work well together? Have they worked together in the past? Um, and that can actually be a great uh, evidence for them being able to tolerate another partnership, right? Uh, the two people who were at a company together and worked together for two years, they probably know each other quite well, and then they can um, probably replicate that uh, successful dynamic moving forward. And then their ability to... Uh, to tell a story, at least for the founding CEO. It becomes very important, especially in this day and age when the fund, funding environment has become tough. Um, it is no longer just sufficient to have a great idea, um, product market fit, or even revenue or a good technology, right? You need to be able to raise. And if you cannot raise, you're going to be out of business. And as I mentioned, the two of our companies, and they're some of the best fundraisers I have ever seen, and, you know, they still took longer than expected to close the round. So when I evaluate a seed company, my one of my key questions these days is, is this person a good enough a storyteller to sell his vision and be able to raise and recruit a strong team? Because if you can tell a good story, you are also able to, to recruit a strong team. And one of the litmus tests for us as investors is we always ask ourselves, do we feel that this person is committed enough and capable enough for us to quit our job to join them in their startup? If the answer is yes, or probably yes, we take a chance on that entrepreneur because we find that very important. A lot of times we meet great entrepreneurs. I mean, you know, on paper they look good and they interact with you and you just don't feel comfortable. You're like, you know, I'm not sure if this person, as you said, you know, has the ethical uh, threshold that is necessary to, to build a proper company, for example, or they are maybe exaggerating things, or they may have too much ego to learn from their mistakes, right? So, so we really take all of these subtle signals into account when we want to make a decision to invest in a company or not. And the biodesign framework, uh, which I'm sure you're familiar with, always called for a clinician and an engineer, a business person, and an organizer. These are the four personas of successful nucleus team for a medtech company. And as I managed the TMC Biodesign program for three years and kind of 
went through recruiting by design fellows, fellows over those years. I, I got to know that, you know, we can do so much kind of figuring out, you know, how good somebody is. But after two or three months, um, we, we have a much better idea. If they have the chemistry, they have the right style of working together and whether they're going to be successful or not. So it's, it's a very hard thing. You know, you, you can get as much data points and experience obviously matters to, to detect the patterns. But individuals need to work together for a period of time before they know that they, they are made to work with each other or not. So this is my single most important advice to the entrepreneurs as they form their teams. Don't find a co-founder and the next day go to your lawyers and tell them to draft you know, your cap table and your shareholder agreements. Because you are not going to know uh, for at least a few months if this is the right partner for you. So if time is permitting... Uh, I would say, you know, just date each other, you know, work with each other for a few months, even six months, even a year before saying that, okay, I'm really going to be committed to this business and we are going to build it together. Um, So don't jump into a partnership prematurely as an entrepreneur, Um, but also recognize that things change. People's priorities change. One of uh, my own personal experience was that a co-founder of mine in one of the companies I did um, you know, her priorities changed significantly because of various life events. And she was not enjoying working for the company and putting in 100 hours a week. And she just wanted a more structured job with, with uh, a very predictable salary and benefits. Um, so while we worked beautifully together in the first year, after the first year, things changed. And, you know, she had to carve out her own path. Um, so, so yeah, uh, founding teams are important. Um, identifying the right partner is going to take time. Um, previous working experiences together matters, and investors pick up uh, on most of these subtle points. Thank you, Farzad. Incredibly helpful. And uh, like you said, uh, so many things have to be right to be an entrepreneur. I mean, forget successful entrepreneur, but just to be an entrepreneur, you know, people who come out of clinical medicine, medical school, residency, whatever it is with two, three, four hundred thousand dollars in debt, it's very easy to say, hey, look, like follow your passion, be an entrepreneur. It's a little bit harder to do when you're in that particular situation and you're married and you have two kids. So even just being a baseline entrepreneur, forget the success, a lot of things really, really have to go right. And, and that's something that's worth appreciating. Uh, just really, really quickly, because I know, you know, we're almost out of time. You know, when you say you have to be able to tell a story, can you dig into it a little bit more and double click into it? Is it just as simple as being sort of eloquent, outgoing, extroverted? And when I say simple, I mean, you know, conceptually, I know those things are hard to do. Or is it something more fundamental about sort of being an amazing leader, someone who can rally the troops and inspire internally, you know, you know, being sort of eloquent, maybe having an amazing vision? Like, what do you mean when you say you have to be able to tell a story? Um, very good question. And I don't think um, it is one single thing. Uh, I believe that, you know, storytelling entails you, first of all, communicating your vision with your team and with investors and clients, customers, and but also being able to talk to the level of whoever it is that you are communicating with. Um, understanding how to talk to the engineering team versus the clinical team versus the sales team. Um, so storytelling, I think, spans all of these areas. And 
it is something that some people have it uh, inherently. They're good at it, but it's not something that you cannot learn. And uh, I have seen it firsthand with a lot of the entrepreneurs I've worked with, with a lot of investments we have made, that the first time that we met the entrepreneur, you know, they had the right ingredients, you know, they told the story, but over and then doing, you know, one to two years, they just got so much better at it. And they, they, they could be much more efficient, much more effective in their communications. And it has a significant influence on your day-to-day operations as well as uh, on the um, overall success of the company and the milestones that you're trying to achieve. Um, so you can learn to be a good storyteller. Um, and, you know, it is not just about entrepreneurship in every job. And position even as, as a parent, uh, as, as a husband, as a wife, you know, sometimes you can tell a good story to the next person and they, they listen to you and your child does what you want your child to do or, or your, your husband or your, your, your wife understands, uh, you know, how you're feeling or how you're thinking. Um, so storytelling is pervasive throughout our whole life. Yeah, what a great way to end. And thank you, Farzad. Just to finish us off, you know, how can our audience learn more about you know, the amazing work that you and your fund are doing and how can they sort of follow that progress? Uh, we try to have a very informative website. Uh, sometimes uh, we are behind in terms of updating it, but, you know, we usually try to uh, make announcements about everything we do, you know, our thoughts on different trends. Um, LinkedIn is the one medium that we leverage the most. And so I encourage you to just follow us on LinkedIn and um, Reach out if you have any questions. Great. Thank you so much, Farzad, for joining us and come back anytime. Thank you so much. Thank you, Alex. Thank you, Sean. It was a pleasure. That was great. Thank you, Farzad. That was a really great conversation with Farzad, one of my favorite episodes. And and I was looking forward to having him on for a long time. And he was just very sort of concise. And everything he said really, really resonated with me. Uh, The one thing that I wanted to impart the audience with is this notion and concept of storytelling, just because it's so pervasive in society and and really, really important. A lot of startup founders and investors incessantly sort of talk about how important it is to be able to tell a good story. What does that mean exactly? I've always wondered, is it just as simple as being, you know, very eloquent, outgoing, extroverted, likable, or is there something a little bit more fundamental about good storytelling that makes you a good leader. And Farzad really was able to give us a couple of key ingredients. And he gave us two specifically, the first one being this notion of having vision. You know, in my estimation, that means you know, having a sense of where we are now and where we can be or need to be in two, five, or 10 years, either in your company, in society, or your institution, or company, whatever it is, and why it's actually important to actually get there. In entrepreneurship, it's the ability to correctly identify which direction the startup ship has to point to and then steering the team there. The second important ingredient, according to Farzad, is this ability to bring people along for the journey. This requires communicating with very, very different and diverse types of folks. You know, Can you really rally a team, an internal team, that's as diverse as a clinician, engineer, business person, sales and marketing, and can you do that effectively? Each of these groups have very, very different ways to of looking at the world. That's informed by you know their underlying values, their different education systems, their different sort of behaviors, attitudes, whatever it may be. And not to mention diverse external stakeholders like investors, suppliers, customers, and more. 
No, what was interesting about what Farzad said was that uh, some people, like with anything, uh, seem to be inherently good at good storytelling. But it's probably a very small percentage of the general population and maybe even a small percentage of the founder population. But like most trades, it can be improved and honed through knowledge transfer and through experience and practice. And, and again, the reason I wanted to mention this is because the notion of steering the ship in the right direction and bringing people along for the journey is sort of general enough. You can see why that's important in a startup, but it's general enough that it can be applied to all walks of life, whether it's parenting or, you know, consulting or, you know, the arts or sports, whatever it is, or even being a clinician. So that was one thing that really stuck with me and resonated with me. And I want to share with our audience. That's my takeaway for today. I'll pass it on to Alex for his takeaway. Thanks, Chad. I completely agree. And it was a great conversation with Farzad. My takeaway is around this notion that the community around us and their career decisions and career paths shape our risk perception about our own career decisions at critical inflection points. You know, during the conversation, uh, when I asked Farzad about the decision inflection point where he had to choose between staying on a, a traditional clinical path uh, versus going into business, he told me that it was relatively an easy decision because in Stanford, the expectation is that you would pursue an, a non-standard or non-traditional paths. And because his uh, mentors were very supportive and open-minded about non-traditional career trajectories that he can pursue. And so within that environment, you can expect to feel safe and to feel right about your decision to pursue a non-standard career path. And he then juxtaposed it with the clinical environment where it is not the same. And we talked about this non-productive and non-constructive mentality of, you know, considering someone as not a true clinician if they haven't finished residency immediately after medical school. And so the clinical environment is very different for a multitude of reasons, and it will likely take a long time for that mentality to change and for those expectations to change. But what I think is very important for our audience to recognize is that these expectations of the clinical environment and what is considered right and what's considered wrong have an outsized influence and impact on the perceived risk, but not the actual risk of uh, career decisions that we make at critical inflection points. And so I felt that, you know, Farzad's narrative around that was very helpful and I wanted to share it with the audience. But to the audience out there, uh, join us next episode for more conversations with amazing physicians who have ventured off the beaten path. And remember to follow us on social media, on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at POTVP Podcast, and to catch our latest podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music. To get in touch with us, you can email us at physiciansofthebeatenpath at gmail.com or visit our website at potbppodcast.com. We volunteer our time and money to make this content uh, freely available. And so if you enjoy the content and find it helpful, you can support us by buying us a coffee at www.buymeacoffee.com slash POTBP. Thank you. See you next time.